So I'll look at a few questions this evening. And uh, realize questions are phenomena. How useful are they? How useful are words? How useful are replies? Mm. Um, and sometimes the Buddha felt it's best just to leave a question unanswered because the answer is too complicated or a person can't actually um, understand the answer <laughs> or it's not even necessary, it's not conducive to this important process. So somebody's asking, they think they understand that my explanation, I'm not a person who worries a lot, but a worry who persons a lot. So that was a expression I made. The worry comes first and the person comes later. <laughs> Although naturally it's a feedback loop. It's uh, uh, because the worry becomes so habitual um, that uh, it gradually settles in as an embedded pattern, and an embedded uh, uh, sankara <laughs> or track that the mind runs down. And so it becomes habitual. What's habitual and internal is experienced as myself. What's familiar, habitual, occurs a lot, that's what I call myself. Self, so that's what I call myself. However, the person suggests they don't really understand the teachings on volition, volition to doing quality, the action quality, or sankara, that running out action energy that uh, directs towards some result. Yeah, so I see a cup, my sankara says, oh, I'll pick that up, that's a sankara, that's an activation energy. Right? I see the shape, right? I see the shape, my perception is that's a cup. See a shape, my mind calls it a cup. Cup means, oh, have a drink, that's a perception. And so then the volition arises, grab hold of the cup, pick it up. That's an intention. Volition, Sankara. So these two, perception, volition, these two are like a team. Perceptions trigger Sankaras, trigger formations. Who or what forms volition? Who or what forms sankharas? If they are just non-personal reaction, who is it or how is it that I am responsible for them and the owner of them? Hmm. Well, they do leave their impressions in the heart and they do become habitual. That which we habitually um, act upon, where there's habitual 
response and action, that familiar familiarity and habitual quality that is experienced as myself. Now, whether it is myself or not, that's how it feels, because it lingers in the heart. So what lingers is not primarily the action, so much as the ethical quality of the action. Action is just an action, movement is just the movement. That doesn't stay, but because the heart is a storehouse of ethical sensitivity, then the ethical quality lingers in the heart. So, at a volition driven by greed, the greed quality lingers. So the more we follow those impulses, then the, the greed quality is firmly established. So firmly established that it becomes very familiar and habitual. What's familiar and habitual is experienced as myself. And it, it leads, becomes the leader of actions. That's the easy path to go down. Okay, so take the example of like a, you have a forest uh, and there's a, say a, a wild deer who runs through the forest. It runs through the forest, it cuts through the undergrowth and you get a path. So gradually this little path appears where the deer run and then the other deer follow it down that path. The path then becomes well established because a herd of deer run down that path. One deer went first, then the herd followed them. That path becomes established. So we establish that a human being, a person walking along, sees this path, thinks, oh, there's the path through the forest. So they go down that path too. They eventually get their axe and they cut down and make a road. Then, having made a road, they drive a car down it, and lots of people drive their cars down it. So it becomes very fully established. So fully established that they can't go through the forest any other way. Car won't go through the forest any other way than on down that road. Similarly, say an impulse arises, just one impulse arises, it moves through the heart. Okay, then that becomes habitual. Do it again and again. It's like a herd of impulses go down that same path. It becomes a very clear path where anything, you know, other creatures will go down that path. So you, your mind inclines that way. And if it becomes very habitual, it's like it doesn't know how to operate any other way. Because that's an habitual, clean, straight, well-trodden path. Yeah. And we can see this example, this becomes then personal characteristics. Yeah. Uh, you know, people get defensive, they don't know how to do anything else but get defensive or manipulative, uh, obsessed with cruelty, obsessed with sexuality, addictive, uh, obsessed with gambling, uh, addicted to it. They don't know how to not do it because it becomes central to their lives. 
people who find their lives are ruled by addictions of some kind or another. They've got to have their hit every day of this or that, three times a day, four times a day. Otherwise they feel lost and confused. Therefore, this habit becomes a person. The person then is steered by that habit, uh, eventually controlled by that habit, uh, and losing freedom. And if the habit has ethically painful results, then they experience the pain of that. And these habits do have ethically painful results. So, as it said, if you look in one of your papers, the paper on wisdom, this is paper C, number five. Some person generates afflictive bodily sankara. Afflictive verbal sankara and afflictive mental sankara. In consequence, one is reborn in an afflictive world. Now, actually... You can look at this in a number of ways, but just bear in mind, often the word rebirth, the translation is jati, birth. There's no re about it. It means opono bhavika, further becoming, further becoming, or upachati, arises again. But it's not like the same thing arises again, but the pattern continues. And it continues as addiction does. And as one is addicted, if you've met people who are addicted, uh, well, work is all addicted in some way or another, but profoundly addicted, then their life rotates around that addiction. Where can I get my drugs? Where can I get my hit? Where can I get my... And so that becomes their world. And if this world is then associated with criminality, desperation, the willingness to act violently, to lie, to cheat in order to get one's addictive needs met, then all these ethical qualities go along with it and one is experiencing one's intimate environment is your world, your intimate environment becomes soured, embittered, painful, afflictive anxious, broken, jittery, despairing. This is the world you get born into, not planet Earth, but your intimate environment. So if someone born into this intimate environment, which is afflictive, can't sit still, can't take a break, because terrible cravings and memories assail them. Uh, anxious feelings assail them. Jittery impulses assail them. Uh, people who are addicted, you know, sit still and these terrible craving assails them. Painful feelings assails them. Sense of self-loathing assails them. Memories and regrets of what they've done assail them. Painful feelings, painful memories, painful impressions, this broken up energies assail them. So this is, you know, this is what's called karma. And all that becomes habitual, familiar. And so the jitta cannot move outside of that world. It's enmeshed in that world. 
and enmeshed in that world it says I am this is what I am I see nothing other than that this must be me because it's lasting permanent habitual continuing and painful this is called rebirth in a painful world and it comes through generating afflictive bodily sankhara afflictive verbal sankhara thinking in condemning angry, hostile, miserable miserly uh, critical, jealous spiteful, greedy, obsessive deceptive ways all that energy goes into your intimate environment sit down you feel this kind of soured feeling painful feeling images come up painful, hurtful, miserable you feel saddened, you feel crushed by it it becomes yourself painful mental sankharas this means painful heart impressions holding on to grudges one becomes a resentful person, an embittered person holding on to the things other people have done to you that you didn't agree with, you become a resentful person you're obsessed with that right? the heart stuck in jealousy other people have got a better deal than I have one becomes a, a jealous person and these are painful experiences yeah. and one becomes them this is Sankara and Sankara is the agent of karma and you become the result of that so in this extent there's a person the person is the result of these habitual actions who generated them who was the person who generated them Hmm? desire interest attention move that way oh that looks good oh I think I'll have one of those Uh, carelessness Hmm? or skillful sankara arose oh I think I'd like to help out I think I'd like to help someone skillful sankara arose therefore one is reborn in a pleasant uplifting world your intervening environment becomes generous and happy this is the fundamental teachings on karma now who is kind of a question that perhaps comes to mind but feels like me when you're embedded in it when the mind is embedded in it feels like me could be really good or it could be extremely painful but actually what happened was a series of responses occurred didn't they the interest in like the wild deer interest in getting through the jungle occurred I want to get through that then impulse occurred it acted upon it and then it created a path and lots of other deer came down that path it's like one part of your mind says oh I'll go that way then you keep doing it gradually that path gets bigger so a lot of energy goes down that so your attention and intention stream in a particular way 
Why? Because they believe there'll be a pleasant result from that. And if they're not wise, uh, they could be making a big mistake. The deer could find themselves running into a trap. (laughs) A deer trap. Thinking, oh, this is the easy way. This is the way through. They could run into a trap. So the careful deer takes a sniff around and hmm. ground looks pretty firm beneath my feet take my time check things out this is the wise deer doesn't necessarily this is how we behave hmm. careful careful attention what's what, what can you trust and if you cultivate you gradually build up a way of sensing what you can trust if it's an action that just occurs heedlessly, reactively, compulsively, with no ability to wisely attend or disengage or pause upon it. So it's not something we can actually measure. We should be careful about that. We should not quite know where that's going. Let's just pause, let's check that out. How does it feel? How does it feel, not just in my thinking mind, which says, oh, this is really good, but how does it feel in my body, which feels the rush or the surge? How does it feel in my heart? So you start to get a feeling for ethics and balance and spaciousness and calm. As I can trust this, this does me no harm, doesn't lead me the wrong way, doesn't lead me into traps. Carelessness does. Heedlessness, the Buddha said, is the path to death. We end up incarcerated in something that kills our spirit. This is Sankara's karma. Who does it? Do we need to answer the question? But the result, it feels like me. But the teaching on not-self offers just a reminder. This is a habit. Not finally an entity at all, but a habit. And with true care, Careful attention, careful attention, skillful application of interest, faith that there's a way out of suffering. There is a possibility to get out of that trap. Nothing is finally permanent, nothing is lasting. That which we take ourselves to be is actually just not as solid as it seems to be. When you're engrossed in it, it seems very solid. But if you relax, direct your attention in alternative ways, there's a possibility to withdraw from all that intense, heavy person. Oh, yeah, where? Where? Where Where do I do that? Well, why don't you focus on sitting on the ground? Why don't you focus on 
holding your body upright. Why don't you take a long breath out? Who's that? And if that's too subtle, you start to look at changing habits, deliberately changing habits. Starting again, starting afresh, generate new habits. This is teachings on karma. But the Buddha said, most supreme, skillful karma is meditation. This really deals with the subtler and more refined aspects of how this whole process happens. And through this you can give rise to skillful sankhara. That means you arise within an intimate environment that is happy, untrammeled, peaceful. And even further, you could actually realize something beyond that through deep understanding. So what is that deep understanding? Looking number six on your sheet. What is to be understood through supreme knowledge? Abhinya, abhinya. The five clinging aggregates. What are these five? The form, clinging aggregate. The feeling, clinging aggregate. The perception, clinging aggregate. The formation, clinging aggregate. The consciousness, clinging aggregate. This is hardly easy language. (laughs) Yeah. But um, form sense of something that occupies has a continual um, form to it so your intimate environment it's, it's a certain sense of my space my presence subtle form um, occupied by the experience of a body it's got a certain form to it it's, it's acknowledgeable you can sense there it is here I am that's called a form and clinging, it occurs, that means a certain contraction around that. Um, uh, so seeking security in it, making it a person, a certain, you know, attraction, contraction of energy around that experience of form. This is where I am, this is what I am. More powerfully than that is the feeling experience. So feeling arises pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. Fundamentally pleasant, unpleasant. When that arises, the attention seizes it. Attention is attracted to it. Attention binds itself around that. Oh, that's really painful. Suddenly that comes to the forefront of attention. feeling. All Dhammas converge on feeling. This is the one that really gets the attention. You know, we can be having all kinds of ideas about enlightenment, noble truth, 
and you know nature of reality and then somebody drops a hammer on your toe and all those wonderful thoughts disappear under the wave of feeling that arises <laughs> it just sweeps everything else out <laughs> suddenly that feeling becomes the supreme element of one's existence it's that strong and then there's a contraction around it I am in pain but I am hurt it's me that's in pain well no there's pain there's this agreeable feeling perception aggregate one as an impression arises that's my dog that's uh, a car and then that that impression is seen as a final reality so how do you perceive a dog nice friendly cuddly canine savage brute <laughs> what does that mean to you what perception arises what meaning arises when you see one of those creatures do you want to stroke it cuddle it do you want to give it a bone or do you feel nervous about it and if you were a rabbit how would you perceive that dog probably rather differently so we have perceptions that we take as defining the creature but actually that's very much changeable when you look at a house if you're an architect you see the design if you're a burglar you see the locks on the windows if you're an estate agent you look at how much it would cost and how much you could sell it for and if you're a person looking for a house you look at the view and so forth you see different things when you see the house the architect sees the design the burglar sees the locks on the windows what do you see it's all true but what do you perceive hmm? those impressions then that's what you notice that comes to the forefront of your mind that bringing to the forefront of your mind in an instinctive and compulsive way is called clinging and the antidote to that is mindfulness where you deliberately bring something to mind not compulsively but you deliberately bring something to mind in order to block the clinging jump in take over of course it's a bit of a struggle because as you sit there you're determined to be mindful of breathing some perception arises that gives you an instinctive clinging reaction you remember something an impression arises and it jumps into the forefront of your mind it's saturated with clinging painful memory suddenly that becomes dominant mindfulness of breathing disappears even though mindfulness of breathing will make you steady and comfortable and the painful memory will make you feel unhappy still clinging is not a reasonable experience it's a compulsion so the clinging goes to that and so we were trying to challenge these clinging compulsions by holding firm against them and stabilizing and then beginning to review this is just an impression relax around it and the formation aggregate so this particular the sankara 
the activation, the compulsive habit, the compulsive habit that we go to immediately. So these are to be understood with supreme knowledge and abandoned through supreme knowledge. How they abandon, they're seen not as myself, not as something that I have to act upon, not as something to uh, favour, but something to withdraw your energy from, withdraw your interest from. You know, it's just that, it's just the thought, it's just an impression. How do you withdraw it? You bring attention into your body, you feel the results of those impressions, those actions within your intimate environment, and by deepening your awareness to your intimate environment, your stable intimate environment, and breathing through it, you begin to release the clinging reflex through this supreme knowledge of your intimate environment, your embodied condition. So you do this through tranquility and insight is the vehicle. So calming, steadying, calming and steadying. So that's what we use this frame of reference of body and breathing for. Steadying, taking down the emotional voltage so it's slower, cooler, calmer. So that acts as your, your, your holding place. And then these compulsive habits hit that. But instead of clinging to them, you stay open and keep aware of your steady <laughs> breathing body process and the clinging jumps up and then you don't give it any attention it begins to wane. Tranquility, insight, you see that which is clung to as not myself, not something that's needed, uh, something I'm not interested in seen with dispassion, seen as changeable, seen as not-self. There's a withdrawal of fascination and this is how insight works. So that habit no longer occurs. There's release from these compulsive habits. Who is released? Do we need to ask the question? Will it go anywhere useful? So sometimes the Buddha talked of self just because it's a handy way of using language. I was this in a previous life, I was that in a previous life. It's a reasonable way of using language rather than going through the verbal gymnastics that I've just gone through to try to <laughs> try to explain what's going on. Yeah. Because, oh, oh, I experienced that. Oh, I get you what you mean. You, know, you get the rough idea. It's a reasonable way of speaking. Mm. Someone else asks, is the sutta, is it prescriptive, i.e. something to do, or descriptive, something that would just happen? Well, I think it's both. Certainly there's a sense of training, so that means you do it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. But what you do 
is what becomes sensitive, uh, steadying. So in a way what you're doing is creating an opening for something to happen. That's how the process flows along. It's not as if you create something, but what you do is create an opening, create a foundation for something to arise. So you can't say, I've decided to be happy, I will do happiness. That doesn't really work, but you can set up the conditions whereby happiness is liable to arise. And we do this all the time. Right? We do it all the time. We say, okay, I'll find a warm place and have uh, something pleasant to eat and bring a friend around and happiness will happen. And maybe it does. So we set up the conditions that you can't say, okay, 10 o'clock in the evening, I will experience happiness. No, you have set up the conditions with which happiness will arise. You do the same thing in meditation. You set up the conditions, sit straight, breathing in and out, regulate that. What will arise will be, oh, the breathing gets long. Oh, stay with that, the breathing gets short. Oh, stay with that, the mind calms down. Oh. Stay with that, linger with that, put aside worry and doubt, happiness arises. So by creating openings, by releasing obstructions, then skillful conditions come in. person doesn't know how to calm the bodily formation in an active sense. Well, you probably do. But um, maybe you haven't really understood it, recognised the process. If you're feeling, say, pretty excited and stirred up, what would you do when you found out you didn't like that? I find this sense of being disturbed and wound up doesn't do me any good. What would you do? You might sit down and take a breath and... Wait, and then put aside those thoughts that are stirring you up. Relax a little bit, and you'd be calming the bodily formation and calming the mental formation. And I'd say, just relax. Take it easy. No hurry. You might give yourself those reminders. And if you listen up to that, You'll probably find something in your body will go, oh, oh yeah, and relax. So we do this a lot, all the time. We do regulate. We're not just helpless. We can regulate our energies. But you have to go into your body to do that. You can't just regulate with a thought. Uh, directing to the bodily formation, spreading your awareness over it, 
adding no more imperative, no imperatives to make something happen, just relaxing the imperative, easing the mind, easing the heart. Bodily formation regulates itself because we're not stirring it up. So, last question for this evening. I've sort of moved on to using some of these questions to introduce some of the other topics, particularly around Sankara and the aggregates and liberation, because they seem to move into those topics. And we might return to those topics again. Um, how to contemplate impermanence, dispassion, cessation, letting go? Is it just by telling yourself intellectually that this pity sukha is not going to last? Um, I don't think that would go very far. This is called direct knowing, is the process. So you contemplate a feeling, stay with a feeling, how long does it last? Doesn't it change? If there's a calm, dispassionate attention towards an emotion, say you're feeling disappointed, fed up, now, how would that keep going? Well, what happens is you keep remembering reasons why and being upset by it and reacting to it, that would keep it going. What if you didn't react to it, didn't get upset about it, didn't think about it, but instead were just aware of that with a sense of dispassion? It's like that, wouldn't it just begin to change? This, uh, this is insight, sounds easy, but to establish that quality of attention is why we meditate, so that your attention becomes steady, reliable, dispassionate, firm, non-reactive, patient peaceful. You apply that to these compulsive, painful, personal experiences. They begin to change and shift and release by themselves. So let's take a break now from the talking and spend some time direct practice.